So that being said, open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, okay? Exodus 20, we're going to cover the back end of 20 and go all the way through 24. Now, um, if you're not familiar, let me give you the backdrop of what's going on in the book of Exodus. If you're not familiar with your Bible, if you haven't lived in the series, in essence, you had an, a, a people group called the Israelites, the Jews. They were in slavery, and this is very important, okay? They were in bondage, slavery, and captivity in Egypt. God, wanting to deliver his people, raises up a man named Moses, his brother Aaron, and their family, sends them to Pharaoh, the classic scene, if you've seen it in movies, let my people go, he holds a staff, there's plagues, all this stuff happens, the people of God, Israel, are taken out and sent out, they cross a Red Sea, the Red Sea opens up for them, and then closes back on top of the Egyptians, they are now free to move to this promised land that God has told them about called Canaan. Okay, a land flowing with milk and honey in this beautiful place where they could be a display people to the world. In other words, that God was going to bless this people, that all of the nations would look to Israel and say, yeah, we want whatever they have. Namely, we want Yahweh. We want the God that they worship. And so they were blessed to be a blessing. We found our place in this story because we know that the church in 2019, post-Jesus and his work on the cross, has grafted in Gentiles, non-Jews, people that are not Israelites, into the family of God. That is where we are today. If you would sit here and say, yes, Jesus Christ is Lord and I am part of his church. We now have the same responsibility to walk in that faithfulness, to be a display people, blessed to be a blessing that the world would look at the way we love one another, the way we live, and say, I want whatever they got, and what we got is Jesus. Okay, That's the vision of what we're doing. So here's what we get today. Now that the Israelites are in the wilderness, last week they were given the very famous Ten Commandments, which a lot of us are familiar with. You've maybe seen movies about them. Do not steal, do not murder, you shall have no other gods before me, no idols. We went through all ten and said these are still pertinent for us in these ways. Today we get kind of backup laws, if you will, laws that then still reinforce the first ten, but what we would call case laws. So you'll hear often in the text, if this happens, this is what you do. Okay? If this happens, then this is what you do, all in line with the first ten. Like in the same way that you begin to think through the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, all the amendments, all things are supposed to kind of come in line with the first ten, right? Like that's kind of the same idea, and I wonder where they got that. But, um, and so here's, here's what we get today is these laws that are meant to dive deeper into the intention of the Ten Commandments, and again, we call them case laws. Another way to think about it is you have national federal laws, and then you have state laws, and you have city laws, and so I did kind of a deep dive on some of the weirdest laws that exist in our land just because I thought I'd do that, and, and here's some that are pretty phenomenal. Did you know anyone here from Goodyear by chance? Nice. Anyone else? So uh, listen, have you ever spit in Goodyear in your life? There you go. Okay, you should go to jail for six months, according to city law in Goodyear. Okay, if you spit on the sidewalk in Goodyear, Arizona, to this day, $2,500 fine, six months in jail. Okay, Chico, California, you cannot build, maintain, or use a nuclear weapon. Okay, <laughs> now you think that would be federal law, but it's not. The best part, the fine is $500. <laughs> right? 
in Connecticut. This one's great. You cannot sell a pickle that does not bounce off the ground by one foot, okay? <laughs> now, now, here's what's interesting about that, and here's why I'm getting to some of these laws. I promise this isn't just for levity, although they are great, okay? Um, in 1948, okay, back in 1948 in Connecticut, there was some charlatans, okay, that were out there slinging cucumbers as pickles, okay? And so they were selling cucumbers to people looking to buy pickles, and so the state had to come in and bring in law that they would stop that. Why? Because here's the, here's the reason. The backdrop of this, people were getting cheated out of their money. Like they were trying to buy a product, but they weren't receiving said product, hence they were then being oppressed in that sense, right? So there was, there was in the midst of it, as crazy as it sounds, back in 1948, this law was set to care for people, okay? Another one, this one is also here in Arizona across the state, and I'm sorry for all of you that do this, but your donkey cannot sleep in your bathtub, okay? <laughs> now, in the 1920s, a dam broke, okay? A dam broke and flooded this city, and a donkey was used to sleeping in this guy's bathtub and then got washed away, and then lots of emergency and medical services were used in order to save said donkey from the bathtub floating down the stream, okay? <laughs> And so what it did, it pulled resource meant for human beings and brought them to a donkey in a bathtub floating down a river, okay? Again, so they passed legislation here to say, listen, for all you donkey lovers, you can't put them in a bathtub, okay? So Sherry, okay, right? If right now Mitch is in a bathtub, you need to get him out, okay? And so the idea behind the whole thing is, listen, this is a people issue, so it sounds so silly. Why would this ever be a law? Because behind the scenes, this stuff actually impacts people, okay? Not having the services, having to spend an inordinate amount of money uh, saving a donkey, and, and this is not meant to attack donkeys, but hear me, I'm just gonna tell you, donkey's not as important as humans, right? And so all of these laws, at some point in their history, were meant to care for and protect and bring peace to that place, okay? That's, that's why they are enacted. There's a state, I think it's uh, one of the states on the east, you can't trick or treat if you're over 12, right? Because they saw this massive uprising of kids just causing havoc in the city, and so they changed that. And so again, laws are meant to increase peace. Albeit, at times, they seem restrictive, they can seem silly, they may not make sense to us in our given context and moment, but what we'll see as God lays out what is called the Book of the Covenant, which again is the end of chapter 20 all the way to chapter, end of chapter 23, is these kind of secondary laws to the Ten Commandments that the people of God were to follow because in following them, there would be greater peace amongst each other, greater peace with God, and greater peace with the nations that existed around them that they might look to the nation of Israel and say, I want what they got, Namely, I want Yahweh. Okay, so here we go. We're going to start in Exodus chapter 20, uh, verse 22. And the Lord said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the people of Israel, You have seen for yourselves that I have talked with you from heaven. You shall, make, make, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of 
gold. Now, um, notice, if you were here with us last week or if you're just familiar with the Ten Commandments, when Moses comes and unveils the Ten Commandments to the people of God, as they listen, they would have heard the same intro. Namely, I'm the God that brought you out of slavery in Egypt. There's a proper way that we worship, and then here's the law for how you treat each other. It happens in the Ten Commandments. It happens again in the Book of the Covenant. The same thing will happen at the end, which we heard in our scripture reading. The people of God will say, yes, we are in. Now, just as a foreshadow to next week, you're going to see this does not last very long. We'll move right into rebellion next week as they worship a golden idol in the form of a calf. But that's, that's for next week. Okay. Um, the backdrop of all of this has to be seen for the church today of, of the question of what, what of this still applies to us a little bit, right? Because if it is case law, certainly 1948, all these different things that are happening around the country, we don't obey all of those laws today. And hear me, the same thing is true with a lot of these laws. But the spirit of the law, the reason for the law, instead of asking kind of what does the law say here, we're going to say why does the law say? Does that make sense? Not necessarily, not every jot and tittle for what it meant for them, but really, what was God trying to do in the midst of giving this law to the people, and then how does that make sense in 2019, Flagstaff, Arizona, here at Redemption Church? And so, um, here's what we're going to do with the text. Again, it's, it's five chapters. There's just not time for me to read all the scriptures. I'm going to ask you to go back and read the text if you haven't read it already uh, when we're done with the sermon, um, or we're done with the, the, the service today. And so go back and reread and jump into, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to talk through them through six different sections or headings that you'll even see if you have like our Bibles that we passed out. Um, you'll see in there the different section headings. These are laws about this general idea and this general idea. Again, the hope is in the midst of it, we would see that the law of God is good and it is for us that we might be a blessing to the world. In many ways, what the law does is then give us our right identity, which I would say to a fault we have lost in our world today. Right, that we've made this Christian thing kind of this individualized me and Jesus deal as opposed to this corporate God drawing a people together that they be a blessing to the world, which we are. And so may that be somewhat reclaimed this morning as well. That being said, the first section, laws concerning altars. This is chapter 20, verses 24 through 26. Again, I'm not going to read. Feel free to follow along as I say stuff if you want. But here's one of the things that make it like not a lot of us are constructing altars to do sacrifices to God. Not, not like this, right? But God was very particular above all else about his worship and about his praise and about his connection with the people that he created and called. And so he sets aside some stipulations of, hey, if you build an altar, this is what it must look like. If you build a place to come and worship and sacrifice unto me, there are very serious particulars of what's going on. And you'll notice that every single detail is thought of because every single detail in our lives God cares about because he is a God that has evolved life. He's a God that cares about everything. And he very much cares about his worship. Look at verse 26. You'll notice even in the construction of the altar uh, that there can be no steps, right? That the priest will not walk up steps in order to then uh, give the sacrifice. Why is this? It's because, listen, then there would be some sexual impropriety because you would see things as he went up the steps that the people of God were not to see because he was building a pure culture. 
So again, it sounds kind of, no steps, but again, he doesn't want the priest to be exposed to the watching people when he went up to give a sacrifice. Again, God caring about every little detail that in his people, his worship would be taken very seriously. Okay, so, so if that's true, 2019, we fast forward today, what could this possibly mean for us? And it's a really simple question. I mean, like, do we take the worship and the reverent work of God seriously? Do, do, we, do we really think, like, you know, he cares about the way we approach him? And, and hear me, like, Jesus has, has torn the barrier, right? The, 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 uh, the veil is torn. We have access to him. There's grace and mercy. But he's still God and still worthy of worship. So when we come and we have the opportunity to sing and to praise to celebrate his name, what is the posture of our heart? This is not about an external action. Do you have your hands up or down? Are they in pockets? Are they hanging? Are they high five? It does not matter. It's what's going on here is this intentional worship happening in your soul and in your heart that says, God, you are phenomenal. Okay. And you care about the way that we come to you because you're still God, the God of the world. The second group that we get here is laws concerning slaves. You might see in your Bibles as the heading. Now, this one requires a bit more of us to talk about here. So um, chapter, this is chapter 21, verses 1 through 11, and verse 16. And so let me unpack this a little bit for you, and please go back and reread it. Um, immediately, it becomes, okay, well, what? Slavery? Like, that's, and, and hear me, like, you just probably somebody thinking, well, Christianity worked to abolish slavery, right, here in this country, but then also the churches use texts like this to condone their owning of slaves. And so, and so the, how do we navigate this text in the midst of, wait, I thought God was trying to do something different and display people, and, and does the Bible then condone slavery? And all these questions that could rise up out of this. And I want to just dispel something right off the front end, that when you hear the question, well, does, or you don't even hear the question, it's just often brought as an attack by those on the outside of the church. Well, the Bible condones slavery. The, the Bible is pro-slavery. And hear me, the context of that is 17th, 18th, 19th century America and the vision for slavery we have in this country, which is an abomination. Now, it was not that, and we know it's not that because of verse 16, which makes it very clear. If you look at your Bibles, it says this, whoever steals a man and sells him, and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death, right? So if there is this forcible removal, this forcible taking, this forcible subjugation to another human, what was literally then caused or what is given to the perpetrator is death. You steal a human, you die, right? So, so we, can, we can kind of step back and say, okay, well, there's something different going on here, at least. It's not the same deal. And so let's talk about some other differences and how truly this was lining up with God creating a people that would bring peace, love, and be a sign of the kingdom of God to the world, okay? Um, these Hebrews, or sorry, first of all, these slaves that would enter into these relationships 
were, were Hebrews. They were Jews themselves. They were not a foreign people. In fact, we're going to talk about how we are to care or how Israel was to care for the sojourner or the immigrant in just a little bit. But in this moment, notice, the slaves are other Hebrews. Okay? They're other Jews. They're people saying, like, no, you're, you're one of us. Like, you're, you're not from over there. You're, uh, you live here. You have citizenship in our people, that type of thing. And so now you are brought into. So these Hebrews found themselves in very dire economic in impoverished situations where they could not take care of themselves, right? Where, and there's, all, there's a litany of reasons this could have happened. It could have happened because there was, there was some death in the family, uh, and so then all of the finances, all of the, the need and the time went to caring for the family, and so they couldn't tend to the farm. It, it could have been a, a mother or, or a young child who could not work for themselves, and so they had to be brought in and helped out a different way. So so these situations were were not forced. They were entered into contracts between fellow Hebrews that someone who was in need would be cared for. Now, there was also a limit to the time that a slave would be indebted to their owner or their master. It was six years, and in the seventh year, they would be freed and say, okay, your, your contract, if you will, is done. You are free to go or you're free to stay. And the the decision was given then to the Jew to say, do you want to stay with this people because they continue to care for you and there has not been an achievement of another means with which they could care for themselves. And so then would they just continue to care for these people that were under them. Now, in the midst of all of this, we know that God cares deeply then about the rights of the people that were put into these positions, and they were not ideal, so let's not also characterize this as just the greatest thing ever. We live in a broken world. This world in Israel, or sorry, in, uh, in the wilderness at the time, and as they would enter into Canaan, was just as broken as it is now, meaning the people were just as broken as it is now, and there were things that people would do opposite of the character of God. And so God intentionally sets up rules here in Exodus, more law in Leviticus, more law in Deuteronomy, continuing to affirm slaves as being brothers, as being those that required care, support, love, etc., etc. And so God, in the midst of this contract that was willingly entered into, would, in essence, say, and if you're going to do it, this is the way that we do it right You do it in sacrifice and love for the one that is under you. This being an image of what? The future savior who, although king, would leave the throne to come underneath us servants and enemies that we might be raised up. The the same model was to to be emulated amongst the people of God and the way that they treated one another. A a way to think about this, I had uh, a family member about two months ago uh, willingly check himself into rehab for some things. And in rehab, the way this one's set up, the rights are gone, right? Like there's, you're saying, I'm going to put you, I'm going to put myself under your care and, and I'm sacrificing my rights at the door. I can't leave when I want. I don't get to eat what I want. When I ask to do this thing, I can't necessarily just do it. And I'm checking my rights at the door because you have promised to advocate and to help me in ways I could not help myself. It's more likened to that than what we hear when we think slavery. 
God again was trying to create in his people an alternative display community to the nations that surrounded, which did slavery just like we kind of know about it in our culture and the way that we saw the Egyptians do it to the Jews. Again, remember that the book of the covenant and the Ten Commandments starts with, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt and rescued you from slavery, rescued you from bondage. God is not trying to take his people out of a situation he hated and destroyed to bring them into a new situation in which now they are the oppressor. Just the opposite. He's trying to show them there is a way we do this that actually loves the neighbor and cares for the hurting, cares for the broken, cares for the impoverished, and that is what's happening in this text, okay? It's massively different. Okay, um, number three, laws concerning your neighbor. This is uh, verses 21, 12 through 32. Feel free to speed read them really fast and then listen to what I'm saying, okay? Um, what you get here is the care and concern for your fellow neighbor is massively important to God, thus it must be massively important to us. And so what you get in this passage is a whole ton of random case law that again says, well, if this thing happens, if you hurt your neighbor this way or if you hurt your neighbor that way, there's gonna be different punitive measures, Right? So in other words, if you hurt your neighbor intentionally, the consequence is going to be higher. If you hurt your neighbor unintentionally, the consequence is going to be lower. And it's pretty straightforward like that, right? And we, we kind of have a similar system, right, judicial system. You guys understand that? In the United States of America, that if, you, if there's premeditated murder, right, like that's going to face a stricter consequence than second-degree manslaughter, even though someone might. So do you understand? Like there's the same thing. It's, it shouldn't be too different for us. God was trying to establish a just society in which we would treat each other, right, in such ways we'd want to be treated. And when, there wasn't, when that wasn't done, there would be justice served. And people would have to face the consequences for their actions, okay? Um, you'll also see in the midst of this that uh, the way you treat other people's animals become a concern in this passage as well. Uh, again, because why? Um, animals, especially oxen and things like that, they were, they were currency of the day, right? That an oxen, if you did not have one, you could not, tilt, you could not do the farm the way you need to do the farm to produce a harvest that would then bring you some income and life and bartering and all that kind of stuff during their agrarian economy. And so in the midst of all this, it's saying if you hurt their oxen, man, there's going to be really strict punishment to that. Why? Because it's affecting people, right? That God always, as he presses in, is thinking through an equitable, caring, just community that would display his character to the world. The fourth one, laws concerning restitution, namely around property, okay, things that people possess and own. Uh, This is chapter 21, verses 33, all the way to chapter 2, verse 17, okay? Uh, So, and and hear me, we'll probably post some of these breakdowns, and so you can go back and kind of look through this, uh, because I know all of you guys, as soon as you get home, like, oh, I need to hear that again, and so you'll listen to it again, that's great. And so, uh, laws concerning restitution, of property. So given here are a variety, although not exhaustive, uh, a variety of situations. Again, case law, if this happens, then this is what you do. Okay? If this happens, then this is what you do. In other words, um, if you go and steal someone's thing, there's going to be higher uh, there's going to be higher justice that's going to have to go to that. There's going to be higher persecution, higher prosecution to if you intentionally steal someone's thing, then you're going to have to pay a higher consequence. 
but then there was another kind of view of just carelessness, right? Like if you're walking along and you accidentally trip someone's oxen. I don't know how you do that, but this is kind of stuff, right? Like if you accidentally harm another one's property, there's restitution, but it's less than that. Then there's this whole clause about if I give you something to care for and in its care for it, you do something wrong, it gets ruined in your possession, there's some consequences for that too. Now in all of this, it, 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 what God again is trying to do in the midst of his people is create a society in which neighbor loves and cares for neighbor. That they, they take other people's possessions and thoughts very seriously. Right? That, that, that whatever belongs to you, like I, I, want the, I want you to have it and I want you to flourish with it. Why? Because in that we all flourish because God trying to create again this alternative society that is not about the individual but about the people as a whole in their following of Yahweh. So God again crafting something that is a bit larger. Now again, a lot of this stuff might sound familiar and because a lot of our law is based in a similar type of idea, right? There's a, a great book by this guy Richard Tarnas and I've talked about it a handful of times up here because I just think it's a fascinating read um, and what he does as an atheist is he begins to unpack why the Western world kind of has the moral value that we have to this day uh, and he would say and advocates that the reason why is the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is an atheist saying that. So he doesn't believe the gospel, but he believes that our culture has so benefited from the morals of the gospel that it has shaped the West the way it shaped the West. Okay? Albeit in the midst of that, we're sinful fools, and so we've wrecked that over and over and over in all sorts of ways of oppression and silliness. But in the midst of it, you have these general laws and thoughts that might sound familiar to some of this because it's been shaped by a Judeo-Christian worldview. This, let me be very clear. This does not make our nation Christian it means that some of the laws were based in a Judeo-Christian worldview, and that is very different. So let me just be very clear about that. Nobody email me, okay? <laughs> the next one. <clears throat> You're already typing? Great. Okay. <laughs> uh, the next one, laws concerning social justice, okay? Um, this is chapter 22, verse 18, to chapter 23, verse 9. Now, uh, you'll notice in 18 and 19, these are kind of some random laws that feel, and, and even when you break down some of the commentaries, it, they, they're not sure kind of exactly why they're positioned there, but the guess is this. These laws, this book of the covenant, was written for the people of God that when they got into Canaan, a land surrounded by other nations and people, um, that they were going to be attracted to some of their cultic ways. And so there's this line about the sorceress must die, which sounds super intense, but when you really delve into what sorcery was during the day and what that meant for the people of God, that was pretty clear. Okay, then you also deal, uh, excuse me, with um, bestiality, right? And that being a common practice among the cultic world around them and might not the people of God, again, that they might be different and set apart and holy, uh, that they would not engage in said cultic practices of the people that surrounded them. Um, now, in the midst of this, you get this list from verse 20 into chapter 23, 9 uh, of these ways to care for and what we would call kind of social justice issues, the way we treat others, namely our neighbors and the people that are outside our world, okay? Could be outside, our, uh, outside the faith, right? Uh, outside the borders that we've set up. The way that we treat the other is really what's get brought out here. And notice that if you see in verse 20 and then in 23.9, this entire section of scripture is bookended by the same line. 
Handful of different words, but if you look at verse 20 and you look at verse 9, this section on social justice is bookended by the line, do not oppress the sojourner for, for you were sojourners when you were in Egypt. Okay, You get that in verse 20, you get a whole bunch of social justice stuff, and then at the end you get, do not oppress the sojourner for you were sojourners in Egypt. This is, this is massively important in our culture today, I think, as we begin to kind of navigate some of these dilemmas that exist in our world. And, and if you're wondering, like, oh, man, are we going to go there? Yeah, we're going to go there because the Bible goes there, right? And, and this is not something to sidestep. It's not something to say, well, I don't know. No, this is a massively important role for the church is to care for those outside, the outsider, the sojourner, the immigrant. Now, where this gets muddied is that we also, everyone in here for the most part, I don't know all of your stories, live, reside, and have citizenship in the United States of America. Okay? And, and so we get this, this kind of conflict in 2019 that, hear me, they don't have right now in thousands of years ago as God is shaping this people in the wilderness for life in Canaan. Right? They were the people of God. God was going to give them a specific land and they were to treat the outsider, the sojourner, the immigrant a very specific way and it was not to oppress them. But you would see in continued, continued giving of the law throughout the, uh, the Torah, the Old Testament, uh, the, the first five books, right? You would see a continued movement towards what did it look like not just to not oppress them but to care for, bless, and be present with the sojourner we have it a little bit different because now the church, God's people, we do not have a border, okay? Hear me, this is very important. The kingdom of God does not have a border. The people of God do not reside in a border-filled land. Our kingdom extends across the world, okay? So we then begin to have to navigate, what does it mean for the church whose primary citizenship is in the kingdom of God. In other words, what God says must trump what the world says. How do we navigate this in the midst of we also live in the United States of America as citizens here and there are laws that we are also called to submit to in the midst of it. And it is a very confusing situation. Next. Just kidding. <laughs> so what do we do? I think we need, to, we need to start thinking creatively. I think we need to start realizing that if there is going to be an opportunity and a chance for the people of God to live faithful to the callings of Scripture, which both include an absolute love and support and care for the sojourner, whilst also a submission to the laws of the place that we find, them, find ourselves, Okay, and we see that in Paul. We see that in the, in the New Testament authors and the way they submit to the Roman Empire but are also subversive in the places they need to. We have places to go and to see how do we do this. And I'm going to tell you right now, you will not find a moment in the New Testament where you see any of the forefathers of the church who both live underneath the submission that they are supposed to have for the reigning government over them, whilst also being subversive in the practice they have without sacrifice. Without the laying down of a lot of our stuff. Our time, 
our treasure, our talent, and our time. You're just not going to find it. What, what does it look like for the people of God to be faithful to love the sojourner amongst our lands right now while also staying in submission? I tell you, it, it means letting go of some stuff. It means dying to self. It means the church needs to start thinking creatively about, okay, let me just, and we've shared this here before, but I'll re- what if, right? Maybe we just dream a little bit about some what ifs. Like, what if the church in Flagstaff said, you know what, like, this is a, a, a real problem, okay? This is a massive issue of our day. There's literally millions upon millions of dollars that the church has in its possession in this city, okay? What, what if we, we took that money and we went and did something at the border, like, like, what if we hired some staff and said, you know what, you're going to run this house down there and it's going to care for people while they wait. Because if they want to do it the right, you know, the right way, and we get in all those conversations again, that's what we're not trying to delve into a whole political conversation here. Let's just talk about the calling of the church. What, what if we were to do that? What, what if we were to say, you know, we're going to go down there, we're going we're to build like... We're going to build some, some dorms and stuff like that, and we're going to staff it, and we're going to care for the people that live there, and we're going to show love to those people. We're going to welcome those people. We're going to sit down and eat with those people. We're going to pay staff to be there and to be present. And you're like, well, that's, I mean, there's thousands upon thousands. Vincent, so what we do, well, guess what? There's millions upon millions of Christians. So we live in this scarcity mentality of like, well, how could we ever? What do you mean, how could we ever? There is not a single more powerful force in the whole world than the church. We just don't believe it. The amount of resource that God has given to the community of faith, not just in our city, but around the world, is astronomical. But we have become so selfish and focused on us and our spaces and our buildings and our things that this stuff seems impossible. It shouldn't be. And so what God was trying to do is craft early in the people of God, this is the way we live because he knew they could real easily get real comfortable in Canaan. And they could sit back and they could relax and they could not remember that their calling was to glorify God and bless the neighbor. This is who we are. Now, I sit in this position and with the elders of this church and the staff of this church and we talk about these things we, and then we're like, okay, but we're, we're one church, 55% collegiate, that don't have jobs. And so when I talk about the millions of dollars, it's mostly out there, okay? <laughs> but even in that, I exist in thinking through a scarcity mentality too as if it's not our God that provides for us. Well, I don't, I don't know if we could take that risk because, well, I mean, like, what, what about, I, I got paid, you know, right? Like, I got to pay my staff who, who crush it and do amazing work at and I'll just say it, like they do amazing work and put in a ton of hours at less than they deserve to be paid, okay? But in the midst of, so I operate there too. This is not you guys stink and I'm doing this right. It's can we please dream together about being the alternative 
community and society and nation that the Bible has called the church to be. And this does not happen after one 40-minute sermon. This happens as our culture in the church changes, as you and I go out of this room and dialogue and converse with fellow believers about, hey, I think the Bible says something different about who we're supposed to be. And it's not a Sunday moment. It's all of life. This is who we are. Okay, I pray, literally pray that these conversations, that this, like the stuff we say on Sundays, whenever whoever gets to preach, whoever comes on stage, these are meant to be starters, not finishers. It's not meant to be, okay, now I get it, now I'll go and do my own thing. No, it's please go and take this conversation out. And hear me, if you disagree with what I said, and many of you tell me you do, and that's great, but if you do, come and talk. Let's dialogue, let's engage the scriptures and navigate what does it mean for us to be a faithful people that I know we all want to be, but maybe we've just lost how. I want to share this quote, and uh, we normally read sections of this Uh, on Martin Luther King Day, but it just seems apt for today. It's a quote from the letter from the Birmingham jail. If you have not read that from Martin Luther King, please read it as soon as you possibly can. And, uh, And it should be both an indictment yet an encouragement to the people of God. This is King writing in the midst of wanting to see the church engage and lock arms with him against a great atrocity, namely our treatment of the African-American black community in the United States of America, and he says this. In deep disappointment, I have wept over the laxity of the church, but be assured that my tears have been tears of love. There could be no deep disappointment where there is not deep love. Yes, I love the church. How could I do otherwise? I am in the rather unique position of being the son, grandson, and great-grandson of preachers. Yes, I see the church as the body of Christ, But oh, how we have blemished and scarred that body through social neglect and through fear of being nonconformist. There was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Whenever the early Christians entered a town, the people in power became disturbed and immediately sought to convict the Christians for being disturbers of the peace and outside agitators. But the Christians pressed on in the conviction that they were a colony of heaven called to obey God rather than man. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be astronomically intimidated. By their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial contest. Things, however, are different now. So often the contemporary church is a weak, ineffectual voice with an uncertain sound. Far from being disturbed by the presence of the church, the power structure of the average community is consoled by the church's silent and often even vocal sanction of things as they are. But the judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, for felt forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright 
discuss dying. So he writes this 40 years ago. How is the church viewed today? An irrelevant social club where we gather to just pacify ourselves, our fear of death. He was right. We wed ourselves to the wrong master. We submitted ourselves to the wrong leader. In church, we have paid for it. And we are not who we are supposed to be. And hear me again, and I echo the words of Martin Luther King Jr. I love the church. Like, it's awkward how much I love y'all, okay? I love being with you. I love being here. I love worshiping with you. I love being in your homes. I love having you in my home. I love the conversations we have, even when they're telling me I'm wrong or dumb about an issue. I just love the church, but I love it so much, and I hope you do too, that we would become who we're supposed to be. And when we are not, we would look to brother and sister and say, hey, come on, this is the way we do things. This is how we live. And it's in all issues. It's not just in issues where we are not doing what we're supposed to be doing. It's in a whole lot of stuff where we're doing stuff we shouldn't be doing. And in both, we need to repent. And we need to heed the words, not just of King. Listen, King was an amazing man. He's just regurgitating Christ. This is who we are. And so God, back in the days of Israel, right off the beginning was like, hey, I'm going to put you in this land. And here's what's amazing. We're going to delve into this more next week. But you're going to see that the land of Canaan, where God was trying to take them, was in the center of the ancient Near East civilization, civilized world. That in other words, if people wanted to get somewhere, they were going through God's land. That everyone was looking to what's happening in Canaan. Everything surrounded it so that everyone would have to look and see this different alternative community that loved and moved in grace and peace and followed a God that was greater than anything they had ever seen. May we be the same thing. The last one, laws concerning the Sabbath and festivals, and here why this is so massively important, and we are a people that have left behind some of this. This opportunity to rest is not just for rest, although it's there. The opportunity for the festival is not just to celebrate and party. The whole thing is, don't forget everything we just said. Don't forget that I am the God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery and bondage. Don't forget that there is a way that I am worshipped. Don't forget there is a way that you love and care for your neighbor. Don't forget these things. And so God sets these laws in place that the people would be a reflecting and remembering people lest they forget and begin to act out in their own desires as opposed to his in things contrary to how God was trying to craft the people. As I wrap this up, one thing I, I just want to mention is, is I, I know I went hard on the sojourner, but let me be very clear about that, that last passage. The sojourner is not the only person in view there. Again, they bookend, but in the middle is any group Oppressed, subjugated, hurting, broken, struggling. 
Namely, a massive one is the poor. And again, we have not done a great job caring for the poor. We have not done a great job caring for the marginalized. Across all sorts of segments of population, we just haven't done a good job. Again, Lord, have mercy, and may we be faithful. Exodus 24, uh, the last chapter there that we get, um, this is God then, or Moses, having given now the book of the covenant, the law to the people, uh, he sends Moses back down to the people, and again they say these words, uh, all that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will be obedient. And the people say yes and amen. And we're going to see next week how quickly he they abandon that same principle and that charge. And we say that to you even now as warning to us that if there's anything in us that I think the Spirit might be doing of saying yes and amen, this is who we're supposed to be, may we not be so foolish to think we can depend on self when we leave here to be able to maintain what God's called us to. May the Spirit of God help us. Lest we fail, lest we fall, lest we hurt those we're called to love. Jesus sums it up like this. Hear, O church, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Second commandment is this, that you shall love the neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you. God, thank you that you, in all sorts of ways that make sense in ways that don't make sense. God, you have called us to be a different, a different set, a different people, not ruled or moved by the culture and its ways, but moved by your culture and your ways. So God, would you speak to us and Holy Spirit convict us? Might there be confession and repentance amongst the people of God in the areas, God, where we have continued falling short? God, and we do that willingly because we know that what waits upon us is the grace, mercy, and love of God shown to us on the cross and in the subsequent resurrection. God, that you have given us new life. We are forever indebted to you. God, thank you that you've justified us so that even when we fail at this, Lord, that the gospel still tells us we are loved and yours. But God, may that be a motivator and not an enabler. God, will we hear this gospel calling to be a faithful people to the world and say, yes, we will be obedient, and Holy Spirit, will you help us to stick to it? Father God, we love you. Bless us as we respond in Christ's name. Amen.